Good evening. This is Orson Welles. And it's my, my great pleasure to introduce this evening in this series of great silent films, one of the great films of all time, one of my favorites, The General, by and with Buster Keaton. He was, as we're now beginning to realize, the greatest of all the clowns in the history of the cinema. For too many years, he was under the shadow of Chaplin, of course, and for too many of his last years, he had a very bad time of it. Those were the years in which I knew him. We used to work in the old stage door canteen. I was doing magic tricks for the troops, and Keaton was washing dishes. He was a lovely person, the supreme artist. And I think one of the most beautiful people was ever photographed. He had his own way of working, his own way of building up gags, slowly and meticulously. But this style was developed later in his career, as you'll see from these clips from his very earliest films. Okay, now for the feature. And what a feature it is. The General. It's about the Civil War. In fact, I think it's the Civil War movie. Nothing ever came near it not only for beauty, but for a curious feeling of authenticity. And yet this is a farce, a farce without Chaplin-esque sentiment, but imbued with a real and very curious sort of dignity. Nobody except Keaton has ever brought us that close to the feel of the Civil War, except maybe uh, Matthew Brady, who was there at the time and who was of course, the first and maybe the best still cameraman of all time. This movie has a kind of Brady quality, a lot of other qualities besides. It really deserves that tired word, masterpiece. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask the ever-magical question, Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and... I am joined today by a first-time Is It Yours co-host, but somebody you may be familiar with if you've listened to The Prophets, uh, Mr. Blaine Daller. Welcome aboard, Blaine. Oh, thanks for having me. Ah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. And one of the things that I'm enjoying about this show is it's giving me an excuse to watch movies that I might not otherwise watch. And I can say that that is definitely the case today. I don't know if I ever would have gotten around to this one despite some of the praise that it's received. And really, the thing would have been kind of the silent movie prejudice. That would have kept me away from it. Uh, Blaine and I were talking, I guess, about two, three weeks ago, and we started to say, you know, what would be a good movie for him to cover? And we started going over a couple of different ideas, and Blaine suggested that we do The General, uh, which is a 1926 movie, uh, which is just right, right, right off the bat, it's out of my wheelhouse there. And it stars Buster Keaton, and it is, a, it is obviously a silent film. And I have to say, having sat down and watched it, and if anybody's interested in watching it, and I hope, you know, we... we pique some people's interest and they decide to take a look at it. If anybody's interested in watching it, it is in the public domain and I watched it on YouTube. So there's no costs involved other than the 75 minutes it took to sit and watch it. And uh, mm -hmm. to, to describe it a little bit, what I had to do was I had to kind of change my mindset on viewing in order to enjoy this the right way, if that makes any sense at all. Because I'm so used to the current style of movie making. And by current, I mean in the last, say... 70 years <laughs> but yeah. when you start getting back close to 100 years it's very very different and yeah. I mean even if you compare what's coming out now to what's coming out 30 years ago it's very different but when you start going to silent and black and white and the technology what it was being what it was at that time you really are talking about a very very different style of movie making so I, oh, yeah. I did feel like I had to focus a little bit more than the audiences of 1926 probably did because I think they were just used to this. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, what what inspired you to suggest this one, Blaine? Uh, this is one when you said anything is on the table. I am a big fan of film. I didn't actually do a film studies degree, but I took every course that my local university offers to people who are not film studies majors as my arts options in my physics and education degrees. And I ran into this for the first time in one of those classes and I just found it's great, but there are so many people who wouldn't even give it a chance because it's silent. So when you said anything is on the table, I'm like, okay, I always enjoy watching this. And when people say that they don't like silent films, this is my acid test. I say, okay, give me half an hour. If you get half an hour into it and you want to walk away, we can walk and I will never try to get you to watch a silent film again. And I've given about six people that opportunity. Not one has taken me up on walking away after that first half hour. Everybody has been in for it. That, that's very, so, very interesting uh, that, that, that you feel passionately enough about it to, <laughs> uh, to treat it that way. Uh, in looking up a little background information on it, the thing that, came at, that jumped out at me a little bit is the fact that it, uh, it did not fare well in the box office at the time. Uh, there aren't any exact numbers available. All I have is the uh, Wikipedia numbers, which we all know we can't really rely on. But they estimate yeah. the budget of the movie at seven hundred and fifty thousand, mm-hmm. uh, which at the time was a considered to be a very high budget for a film. Yeah. Uh, they actually trans translated that into current dollars, which again the accuracy I can't attest to. But they uh, they estimate the current costs of bu- the current budget at $10,024,906. So we're still talking mm-hmm. a modest sum by today's standards, even though it was a big yeah. budget at that time. Although, as you implied, just straight up inflation conversion, it's not going to give you an accurate picture of what it takes to make a Jackie Chan or a Buster Keaton movie today. Sorry, that, he inspired Jackie very, Chan, very and a true. lot of it is the... Yeah. That, just because... The cost of insurance for the movies is so much higher now than it was then. And Buster Keaton would be a guy who could not function without some very nice insurance policies in place. Oh, absolutely. There are a lot of a lot of current things that I've looked at on an inflation calendar uh, calendar calculator to figure out what it would cost currently, and they don't really compute. And as you said, there's different things that enter into it. Uh, Insurance is probably a huge aspect of it. Stars' uh, salaries are probably a huge aspect of it. And I would Mm -hmm. think even the deals that they make with the theaters is a big factor nowadays. So, you know, there's all mm -hmm. sorts of things that enter into it. But, you know, we only only can work with what we we have. Uh, So, again, a big budget in... 1926 would be considered a very very modest budget now but you know the, mm-hmm. the, you know, just the, the closest thing they have in this movie to CGI is at one point there's a storm going on and you see uh, a dark sky and all of a sudden this little bolt of lightning comes across which couldn't be more clearly have couldn't have been more clearly drawn in than it was uh, that one was actually scratched in scratched in okay yeah to get the nice bright white you couldn't draw on it, right? Because when you're working on film and negatives, all you have is the emulsion. You can block the light, but you can't add it. So they went through two or three frames and painstakingly scratched the same shape, just peeled off the emulsion in that shape on and the I, negative. I assume they animated it by doing it slightly extended further each time to make it look as if it's coming down from the sky. Exactly, yeah. So they had to kind of trace what they'd already carved out on one and carve it out on the next one. So that is that is the equivalent of 1926 CGI. Yeah, and the, this uh, was... Uh, sorry? That was a feat with this film because... Sorry, like I said, I'm, I'm a big film buff. I, I like the film history. I own at least one movie from every year movies have been made going right back to the 1880s. That's very cool. I do not and, have that, but I am also a big movie buff. I always have been. I've always loved the theater experience, but watching them at home, watching them at home is also a wonderful experience. But I do find in my, uh, as as I'm getting older and older, it's much more easier, much more easy to sit back in a chair, watch a movie, and doze off ten minutes into it. So that's that's the only bad aspect to watching them at home. But uh, the box office on this film was estimated worldwide as a million dollars. So it did not exceed its 
production budget by very much. And then when you factor in, you know, who knows what the costs were at that time as far as uh, advertising, public relations, that type of thing. Who knows what mm-hmm. type of cut went to the theater owners. But clearly it yeah. was not a big moneymaker. The reviews on the movie were fairly negative when it came out, comparing it to Keaton's other film. Excuse me. Comparing it to Keaton's other films and saying, you know, not as lighthearted, not as funny, uh, which mm-hmm. I have to agree with. This was not the uh, the romp that I pictured it as being. But I think once you get that romp mm-hmm. idea out of your head, then it can be very satisfying. Yeah, this works extremely well if it's your first Buster Keaton, which is what it is for a lot of people. Uh, beyond that, it's a lot less farcical. I mean, you were talking about Harold Lloyd earlier and... Keaton basically apprenticed under Harold Lloyd. So Harold Lloyd's career was up and running and Keaton was the third banana in a lot of his films. And Harold Lloyd recognized the talent that Keaton had. You know, Keaton is known as old stone face because he will keep that emotionless face, but he also really likes to set up the jokes because when you've got that lack of reaction from, from the character in his face, right? you know, he will he finds the humor works best if you build it up and build it up. So instead of having something, you know, sudden and bizarre coming out of nowhere, the audience knows what's coming pretty much the entire time when when you're watching, like you could see the gag coming, but that doesn't mean it's not funny with the way he delivers it, which is a talent in and of itself. A lot of comedies, you know, sitcoms I have no patience for it's because I know what the punchline is going to be when they're still giving us the setup. And yet Keaton does exactly that and manages to get away with it. Right. Well, I, I think on when you're talking on a sitcom level, which is a really a totally different level of comedy than what we're talking here, especially considering this yeah. is pure physical comedy since it's silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, often it's in the timing of the delivery. And a lot of mm-hmm. television actors don't have that precise sense of timing Although many of them do. I mean, it depends. We we can go on a case-by-case basis. But when the lines start becoming so apparent, you know, clearly it's timing. And and you notice it more in a a sitcom or in a movie when you're watching it for the second or third time and the line is still funny. And then you realize it's not funny because the line is so hilarious. It's funny because of the way and the, the way it's being delivered and the timing of the delivery. I think that is true also with physical comedy, but I think it's more subtle. I don't think it's mm-hmm. as obvious. And, and even, like I said, even with the uh, the delivery of lines, I don't know that it's obvious to you the first time. When you're watching it and you're actually getting that good belly laugh out of it, you're not saying, oh, wow, you know, he waited that extra second and that was perfect. That's something you, mm-hmm. you realize over repeated viewings. And, mm-hmm. and like I said, with physical comedy, that, that becomes, I think, even a little bit more subtle when it's done well. Yeah. And how did you oh, yeah. first I... discover this movie? Uh, it was actually on the syllabus of my first film studies course. You see, I, I also so. took uh, multiple film study courses. I, I was a uh, business major, a communications minor. So as a communications minor, I was able to take pretty much any pop culture type uh, cl- course that I chose. And I, I loaded up with film appreciation classes, television appreciation classes. And I also did classes in television production and movie production, which... The, the nice part about that is the final exam for both of those classes is actually to do your own production. You have to make a movie, you know, which I think was five minutes long uh, for the for the mo- movie class, and you have to make a television show in a television studio. You, you actually direct a, a program uh, for your final exam in that, and th- that's kind of a trade-off because when, you know, you direct the program for your final, but then when other people are doing their final, you'll be a cameraman or a lighting person or whatever. So you learn all the mm-hmm. aspects of it. And it, it really did, I think, enhance my love of just pop culture from a uh, visual point of view, movies and television. So, again, that's that's why I do this show. I mean, it's, it's a love of movies that makes you do a movie podcast. And mm-hmm. the aspect of it that I'm going to have people such as yourself on here who are going to say, hey, Paul, why haven't you ever watched The General? Sit down and watch it. That's like... The, the biggest bonus of the whole thing. And I have a list of movies that are coming up that I have to watch for upcoming shows, some of which I'm very familiar with and some of which I've heard of and never have had the time to sit down and watch. So it, it's really it's really just a matter of finding the time, but when I have the time, it's absolutely a labor of love. 
and and this mm-hmm. one is no exception to that rule. Uh, although I'm not giving up my review final grade yet. Mm-hmm. Let me give a, a brief synopsis of this movie for anybody. And I'm stealing this synopsis from IMDb. Some people putting their own synopsis of the movie. And the uh, the Wikipedia one is too long. And the IMDb one is one that's just about a, a good level, a good length. So I'm going to go with that. Johnny Gray has two loves in his life, his engine and his girl Annabelle Lee. The war between the states begins with an attack on Fort Sumter and Johnny is first in line at the recruitment office. But the enlisting officer rejects him, not telling him the reason that he is more valuable to the South as an engineer. Annabelle believes he didn't even try to enlist and she refuses to even speak to him until he is in uniform. Time passes and Union spies hatch a plot involving Johnny's engine, the General. Not only do they steal the General while Johnny and the passengers are off the train having dinner, but they kidnap Annabelle, who is still on board. Johnny pursues the general in another engine, the Texas. Through various mishaps, he becomes the Unionists' sole pursuer. When the Unionists discover the train chasing them has only one man aboard, the long pursuit ends and Johnny barely escapes with his life. Johnny is now behind enemy lines. He wanders the forest during a rainstorm, then discovers a house, which he breaks into, grabbing what food he can. It turns out the Unionists who stole the general are using the house as a base of operations. While hiding under the dinner table, Johnny learns the details of their next plot against the Confederates. More importantly, he discovers they have Annabelle Lee, whom he had never guessed was still on the General when it was taken. Johnny manages to escape with Annabelle and take back the General. Now the Unionists are pursuing Johnny, but if he and Annabelle can outrace them, they can warn the Confederates of the Union's latest plan. And I'm gonna spoil the ending. They outraced them and they won the Confederates. And if that's a spoiler, I don't think you really got to worry about that. Yeah. Uh, so I envisioned going into this movie that it was going to be, you know, a case of mistaken identity. And he was going to be kind of the hapless klutz who got mistaken for a general and then is giving orders and somehow, you know, uh, finds his way to victory despite his klutziness. But no, not at all. Uh, to a great extent, I am torn as to whether I would term this a comedy or a lighthearted adventure. Mm-hmm. Because it really is not full of sight gags. It's not full of that many comic moments, although it does have them in there. Most, oh, yeah. of, the, most of the comedy that I saw was, you know, the, the broad physical comedy that you'd see... Uh, and most of it was when he was on the ship, on the ship, on the train, pursuing the Confederates or vice versa. You know, so a couple of klutzy moments here and there, a couple of things where he was trying yeah. to, uh, you know, to do something that was just beyond his abilities to do, that type of thing. But, you know, more, more or less, I saw this as an adventure movie more than a comedy, although it does have its comedy mm-hmm. beats in it. I think, you know, a lot of it was... Uh, really just showing his dedication to the general, his dedication to his side. And I think kind of through that, his dedication to Annabelle. You know, they showed early mm-hmm. on when, uh, you know, how impressed she was at her family signing up for the war and how disappointed she was in him for not doing it, although neither of them understood. You know, he she, he didn't understand why they wouldn't take him and she didn't she didn't believe him when he said he tried. And I think that was part of his motivation in this was to show that he was dedicated to the cause. Mm-hmm. And he showed, you know, a single relentlessness in chasing these Confederates that was both amusing and admirable in its own way. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that aspect of it, too. Because, you know, again, it's very, very hard. And maybe it has something to do with the times, but I think it's very hard to translate some of these emotions into a silent movie without it just seeming like ridiculously overbroad in the acting. Yeah, it's very tough to do, but they've done it carefully. I mean, at the end of the day, I care about Johnny. I almost want to see him win the war single-handedly, even though he's fighting for the South. (laughs) Yeah, that, that was an interesting choice in the movie was, you know, when they were writing it, obviously the, the war was concluded and they knew they were writing it with him being a champion of the losing side. Mm-hmm. 
So and, know, I, I think that was interesting, like, you know, as to why he would have done it that way. Well, probably because it's based on a true story. Oh, is it really? I did not know that. It is. Yeah, it was. Um, it's actually been adapted. There's full details in the trivia section on the IMDb, but it was uh, April 1862. And it was a, a union agent, uh, James J. Andrews, led a squad of 21 rather than 10. And they stole a train and moved up. And yeah, William Fuller and Jeff Kane were the conducting engineer of the general. And they actually pursued that one first with a locomotive called the Yona and then with the Texas. So the names of the trains were the same. Um, Keaton actually tried getting the actual general and the actual Texas for the film, but they were not allowed to do that when they found it was going to be a comedy. Um, yeah, but, maybe, if, maybe if he had shared the script with them, they would have been a little bit more uh, open to, to the idea because, again, I think it was portrayed in a very positive light. It was, but at the time, they didn't really work from full script. They had ideas, and you know, sometimes they'd film scenes where they knew the emotions and would come up with the intertitles later to tell the story. Keaton and Chaplin were in a constant competition to try and use the fewest intertitles possible per minute in their films. And Keaton actually ended up using fewer intertitles. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with silent films, the intertitles are not quite like subtitles because they didn't have the technology to easily put text on screen while they were filming. It's just, you know, they had to film whatever was in the room and anything else would be etched. So, you know, putting subtitles in would mean scratching those letters into every frame. And then, you know, it's hard to keep that consistent. So they would have what they call intertitles where they'd, you know, do an artistically rendered version of the dialogue and just insert it, usually in between frames while the actor's talking. But, yeah, they would, they filled that out, managed to, to get that through, and then, yeah, I guess the there's a more historically accurate version uh, that was done by Walt Disney as a drama called The Great Locomotive Chase in 1956. I haven't heard of that or seen that on DVD or, or Blu-ray or anything like that. And given the 1956 date, I'm going to assume that was one of the early Disneyland USA episodes, which, you know, the series that later became the wonderful world of Disney. Right. Right. I, I've never seen that one either. And, and I, I have to admit it to a, you know, an ignorance of this particular story. Uh, but, it, you know, there's, as I was watching it, I started wondering how accurate or inaccurate uh, it's being presented as far as the technicalities of working a locomotive. You know, clearly he was stoking the fire. That that had a lot to do with it. At one point, he's up on top with a hatchet, cutting the wood to actually make it small enough to fit into the uh, the stove. So mm -hmm. he was stoking the fire, and then they stop and get the water for the steam and everything. So that there were moments in there that appeared to me to be accurate. I'm sure they took some liberties to have one man doing all of this stuff by himself but you know it, it didn't there was no point as a current day person where I sat there and said oh that's not possible that couldn't happen as far as the the workings of the mm. the, the locomotive yeah and a lot of this just because with the era they couldn't fake it so Keaton was out there running the locomotive he was out there you know actually carrying the blocks of wood and knocking things off the tracks like uh, the only sort of hand waviness that they did was just for the sake of his safety, um, a little bit in the scene where there's a cannon attached to his train and the cannonball falls up short. Uh, when they were originally shooting that, it was way too powerful. And it's actually, you know, first time they shot it, it slammed into the back of the engine and it was a health hazard for him. But, you know, he inspired Jackie Chan. Buster Keaton was still standing right there with an actual cannon being fired at him. Although they had that lined up well on a straight piece of track in the sequences where the, the fuse is burning and he's, you know, running over the wood and things like that. They shot those with an unloaded cannon and it was just the fuse running. Right. But to get that shot where he he wanted that cannonball to land perfectly on the floor in the engine without actually hitting anything else. He loaded the gunpowder into the cannon with tweezers counting it out one grain at a time to get just the right trajectory. That's pretty incredible. So, yeah. 
I'm, I'm curious, you know, you said you've had numerous people who you've sat down and said, you know, watch this movie. Uh, yeah. I'm curious as to the level of movie buff you've shown it to. You know, have you shown this to like very, very casual movie watchers or has everybody pretty much been a movie fan? I've actually shown it to a mix. So I've shown it to people who, you know, I've shown it to, you know, the generation that remembers watching some silent films, although not too many. I mean, my grandmother was born in 22. We had a, a family friend who was born in the 30s. You know, so they remember silent films as, you know, only about 10 or 15 years old that they were watching as kids. Um, it goes over very well with people that age whose healing is failing, by the way, because, you know, remember one guy, he doesn't like watching a lot of things with dialogue because it's hard to hear these days. So he's going back to the silent films. I've also watched it to people born in the 70s and 80s who've never before seen a movie older than them. Hmm. It's very interesting. I, I, I find that aspect of this to be fascinating. Uh, this movie, as I said, was not originally well-received by the critics, but however, uh, over time, that opinion did change, uh, and it was put in uh, the American Film Institute's top 100 movies. It was considered to be one that had to be preserved, or, or one to be preserved. And I guess the biggest positive review came from Roger Ebert, who uh, listed it as number six on his list of top 10 movies of all time. Mm -hmm. Even the uh, IMDb list, the, the top 250, when I was looking at it yesterday, the general sitting at number 141. Which I and... really need to make a point of, list, of looking at some of those lists and picking some more movies that I haven't seen. Because there are always a couple I haven't seen. In fact, I think, didn't you post one on Facebook about a year ago? I'm sure I, I've posted it more than once. And I, I tend to look at those lists, you know, not so much as, you know, advice is just, you know, checklists and see where things already are on my lists. Do I have to add anything to my two watch lists? That's what I need to do a little bit more of. I tend to look at those lists and look to see, well, how many of the top 100 have I seen? Oh, I've seen 75 of them or whatever number. I'm just making those mm -hmm. numbers up. But what I probably should be doing is I should be looking at that list and saying, which ones haven't I seen? And do I want to put those on the list to see at this time? Yep. Which is probably is... a better way for, or a better angle for me to, to take from this point forward. And then the, the, no, the, for the purposes of this podcast. Yeah, to, to to an extent, it's it's. I'm not sure of the exact uh, mission statement of the podcast. More or less, it's, hey, let's take a look at a lot of movies, and there's different purposes on each one. You know, for example, you know, we we did Suicide Squad the week after it came out. That's hey, this movie's coming out, and there's a lot of buzz about it, positive and negative. Let's take a look and give a critical opinion to it. Mm -hmm. uh, we took a look at Planet of the Apes from 2001, saying, hey, there's a lot of negative buzz on this let's take another look at it and then yeah. there's others where uh you know somebody came on and said this is one of my favorite movies of all time can we do this this is the first one where it's kind of a combination of a couple of things you know you're saying it is one of your favorite movies but you're, you know it was, there was also an aspect of hey it's incredibly well reviewed over time maybe i should look at it for the first time ever and, I, and i'm mm -hmm. i'm happy that i did uh the co-star in the movie it's uh, what was her name? Marion. Marion Mack. Marion Mack. She had uh, what appears to be a fairly limited film career. Uh, you know, film stars of that time would be in you know just an incredible number. When you see their filmographies, it go they usually go on and on and on, uh, from starring roles to very very small bit parts, and and a lot of the starring roles were in uh, you know twenty minute uh, features at that time instead of full length movies, but she. When I looked at her filmography, I think I only saw maybe about 15 movies on it, something somewhere in that, in that range. Yeah, Would the you... IMDb lists nine. So she was in a couple short films and was an ingenue in a stage sequence in 1921, then one in 1923, one in 1925, two in 1926. Then after this, there's a couple of Alice in Movieland shorts that jumped from 1928 to 1940. So I wonder if the 1940 version is just a re-edit of the 1928. Very possibly, I would think. Yeah. Although she was also listed as a writer on four other shorts. Well, she was a writer on Mary of the Movies, which she was in. 
And then others in uh, 38, 40, and 42, she did screenplays for movies she didn't star in. So, yeah, it is, as you said, a, a somewhat limited career. And I think a lot of that, it may, this was her last major production. And as you said, it wasn't a box office success. And I wonder if, you know, depicting one of the, the heroes of the South is one of the reasons it wasn't that much of a success. Right about 60 years after the Civil War, memories are still pretty fresh. And championing someone from the losing side, you know. That, yeah, that, that could have been a factor. That, that could have played into it, certainly. And I believe, again, we talk about the budgets of movies at this time, you know, even by today's standards being somewhat modest, uh, even, you know, even when you factor in inflation. And I think that's because at this time, there was an incredible amount of competition for your movie dollars. This was it. I mean, you couldn't go home and watch television. There were, so shockingly, there were no DVRs. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you wanted to watch something, you, you had to go to the theater to see it. So there was a lot of competition. And if you're putting out a movie that the topic, the subject topic on, on its face may not be totally in line with your thoughts, you might choose a different movie to go to. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I could see I could see that being a factor in this. Looking at the promotional images, even the official poster, what it's really selling is Buster Keaton. Right. There's a giant caricature of Buster Keaton at the top of the poster. Then his name, the general's in smaller font, and it's just Keaton and a blonde lady held together with a, a train that's kind of coming off the, the rails at the bottom so that the poster doesn't tell you much about it you know if the most of the promotional stills were of keaton down on the cow catcher of the train looking forward i which which you know, also they, could have entered into some of the poor reviews that it got because the advanced public relations for what it was at that time may have made people think this was going to be a very farcical comedy which it's not no and a lot of keaton stuff before that it was. Um, I worked at a theater for three years, and one of the things I found is when people tell you whether or not a movie is good, what they're really telling you is, you know, how well it measured up to their expectations. So if they expected a certain type of film, and, you know, if you, if you go into a movie expecting a 6 out of 10, and it's objectively an 8 out of 10 by your standards... Well, you might walk out going, well, that was a 9 or 10 out of 10 because it was so much better than you expected. But if you expect a 10 out of 10 and get that solid 8, you walk out going, well, that was a 5 or 6. Right? Yeah, the, I, I, I agree with that. I think there's a certain factor that comes in mm -hmm. measuring the level of expectations. And I think that's some, yeah. why we sometimes have to wait a little while before we review a movie. Because your yeah. immediate opinion of it may not jibe with what you think a week later. Yeah, and a lot of that happens when... The, you know, the advertising misrepresents it or when you come in, you know, looking for one thing and you you get another. I remember having debates with people online before the uh, Eric Bana Hulk film came out, directed by Ang Lee, because I had read the novelization before the movie came out because I was looking forward to it. And one of the things I realized is that Ang Lee was bang on when he was saying, you know, he wanted to study the psychology of Bruce Banner, knowing there's this monster inside him. That was going to be his focus. You find out later that he wasn't going to have a supervillain at all until the studio forced him to put one in when they were halfway through filming. And they're going, we haven't seen the supervillain fight yet. Don't you need time for CGI? Right. A lot of that was forced in. And then the way the trailers were cut, they made it look like the fun action romp that Spider-Man was. And that wasn't in all the movie. So when that early work print got leaked, which again had a temporary score, the editing wasn't done, which slowed down the pace. But a lot of people were coming in expecting movie A, and they almost got a totally different genre out of it. It had a lot of negative buzz, and it was the first major studio film to see that 70% crash between first and second week. That's now common because of the way things are marketed and distributed. Well, but a lot of people I know who hated it the first time, when they go back a second time and watch that film, understanding that, yeah, Ang Lee's Hulk is a Bruce Banner film that guest stars the Hulk. You know, when that's what they expect coming in, they walk away from a second viewing and go, you know, that was a lot better than I remember it being. Okay, well, cl clearly you have some fondness for that movie, and I can tell you in, in my viewing I did not at all. 
Uh, well, to be know... fair, I have fondness for everything with Jennifer Connelly, but <laughs> but I, I I was aware of what he was trying to do when I watched it, but I may have watched it through somewhat of a jaded eye. So perhaps one day we'll we'll have to cover that movie and discuss it. My yeah, my whole it's... thing on this show, uh, I, I'm not going to say any names just because I don't want to. I'm going to be very vague on it because it's still something that may happen. But uh, there's a movie that I think of very highly and is generally considered very high on many, many people's lists. And I was speaking to somebody about it and he was like, oh, I hate that movie. And I suggested, well, maybe we should have you on the show and we could talk about it. We could kind of debate it a little bit. And my whole thing was, I don't want it to be, I hate that movie because I don't like that genre. Because if that's mm -hmm. your only argument, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you about wanting to like the genre, but we're not going to have a very intelligent discourse about it at that point. But if you could say, no, I'm fine with the genre, but I think the movie failed because of these five reasons, then I think we could have a real good discussion. Yeah. I mean, if you were and I were to podcast about The Godfather, which you previously said is your all-time favorite movie, I appreciate... The Godfather on a technical level. It is extremely well constructed. But, you know, that particular story and mafia stories in general don't interest me. So I'm happy I've seen it. I've never felt compelled to watch it a second time. Right. But you, your criticism of it isn't it's a bad movie. Your criticism of it is it's not my cup of tea. Exactly. And I'm fine with that. Like I said, I, I would never try and convince somebody, oh, you don't like this, you should. But again, mm -hmm. like I said, if you could say, well, the reason, you know, I, I'm fine with gangster movies, but I don't like The Godfather because this aspect of Al Pacino's performance, or I thought the directing was very heavy handed in the way he did X, Y, Z or something like that. Now we could have a good discourse on it. Mm -hmm. So again, that's, that's what I'm, I'm going with. And I think the Hulk movie might be a good one to try and kind of test that theory on since you, you know, since you like it, I did not. But I would give it, it a second viewing to see if maybe I change my opinion or maybe if I have some good, well-reasoned arguments to give you as to why. Not necessarily I'm right and you're wrong because I wouldn't, I would never try and say mm -hmm. that on opinions. But maybe I can give mm -hmm. you some arguments as to why I feel this way. Yeah, it's, it could well be worth discussing a difference of opinion. So, because that's what it boils down to. And I think on this particular movie, now I've only seen it once, but I think our opinions are not going to be that dramatically different. They might be slightly different, but not dramatically. Uh, any, other sp any other particular points about this movie that you think are worth discussing? I, I think a lot of it, what makes this movie work is Buster Keaton. This was his last great auteur effort. He was trying to sort of elevate the comedy to actually have a point and, you know, to show that, you know, while... The North won and the South wasn't regarded well. That doesn't mean that there weren't noble people on the South. That's part of what was trying to come across. Unfortunately, because this did not fare well at the box office, this pretty much ended his ability to make independent film because people didn't want to distribute it if it was in his hands. This marked his move to MGM. This was, you know, like I said, the last thing he did, did it really independently, at least until a railroad or short with the CBC many years later. But after this, when he was contracted to MGM, he had a tough time making the transition into sound films because it is a very, very visual style that works best for him. I mean, there wasn't a lot of dialogue even when he had sound because that's not what came naturally. And he ended up having to answer to the studios to such a degree and just, you know, sort of do what MGM wanted him to do his career became so unsatisfying for him that it really was a major impetus in starting his drinking problem. So as much as this is heralded and recognized for, you know, the great film of its era, you know, if you've seen a lot of movies from the era, wh where it falls on the Jaws scale is up to you, but I haven't seen anyone who's watched multiple films from the silent era and not put this one very near the top of the era. That's something that only came out after the fact. And unfortunately, the fact that it wasn't seen that way by its contemporary audiences really led to a massive downward spiral in Keaton's personal life. Wow, that's amazing. I, I did know that it affected his 
abilities to have free reign on movies from this point forward. I did not realize that that dramatic effect on his life on, on a whole. But, you know, you mm-hmm. could understand acting in a silent film, as we've talked about to some extent here tonight or this morning, uh, is very different from acting in a movie with sound or with talking because there is sound. There's music playing throughout this movie, and I think we should probably discuss that in a couple of minutes too. Yeah. Uh, but the acting style is very different. And there are not a huge number of actors and actresses who made the jump from one to the other where they were giants on both sides of it. I think yeah. you know, most most of the people either were proficient at acting in silent films and really didn't play quite as well in the sound era or vice versa. And I mm-hmm. think the acting style is what plays into that. And I think the fact that somebody might be a huge hit on one or the other kind of goes to why they didn't have the strengths in the other. Because I think, you know, actors who who really did well in the silent film would be viewed as, in the silent films, would probably be viewed as overacting and over-emoting in the sound era. Oh, yeah. And compare that to what we see from Keaton here. I mean, one of the funniest sequences in this movie is really just the cameras on his stone face with a series of incredibly perfectly timed blinks. Just yeah, and that you know that could still every once in a while you see a, a, a talkie where they clearly are influenced by the silent films. They have the talking in there because they need to, but the comedy beats are all done. You know, would would have translated just as well mm-hmm. to the silent films. And I guess those are the actors who can kind of be on both sides of it. And, and I think we, you know, we should make no mistake about it. There's, there's a list of actors in this movie, but this is a Buster Keaton movie. Nobody else, oh, yeah. even even uh, Annabelle Lee, as played by Marion Mack, uh, nobody really shares the billing in this thing. There's the star in the movie, mm-hmm. and then a very very distant second role. Yeah, Marion Mack is probably that second role, and in a 75 minute runtime, she might have 15 minutes of screen time. And, and in that 15 minutes of screen time, she probably shares the screen with Keaton, 13 of it. Yeah, if not more. Yes. And she was apparently part of the reason, perhaps, that this was her last major film. It might also be because there's some things that, you know, Keaton felt that genuine reactions would sometimes work better than others. So, you know, when she gets doused by the water spout because it wasn't lined up correctly... She did not know that was coming. Keaton had that set up. It was planned. But had he told her about it in advance, well, then he wouldn't have gotten the same reaction. Yeah. So he didn't tell her that she was going to get slammed in the back with some pretty high-pressure water. <laughs> when the Union soldiers react, there, there's one scene where the, the Texas train engine is going across a burnt bridge. And it, the bridge collapses and the Texas ends up in the river the most expensive single shot in movie history up to that point and for several years after in fact to the point where they didn't even have the budget to clean it up so that train engine stayed in that river until it was salvaged for scrap metal in world war ii the soldiers who were following it up didn't know that the bridge was going to collapse and some people from the local town in oregon because this was all filmed in oregon where they still had the old format train tracks to make this work you know, the people who live by that town freaked out because they didn't realize that there were dummies in the train engine and they were, you know, ready to jump in front of the frame in modern clothes to try and save the the engineer <laughs> before, the, you know, the film crew cut out in front and said, no, 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 it's okay. There's nobody inside. This was planned. Everybody's safe. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I did see a note on that about the people not knowing they were dummies as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's... They're all. Uh, there's a list on IMDb of anachronistic moments or events that occur in the movie, and for the most part, they're pretty minor. Uh, like the sword that uh, Buster Keaton has, that ends up taking out a sniper. Uh, apparently, that was not available at the time that this movie is supposed to take place. Uh, the air brakes on the uh, on the engine didn't exist yet you know little things like that but nothing yeah. nothing that affects the basic storyline or plot of this movie in any way shape or form 
yeah, like, you know, there, there's a version of a flag that's actually a year, you know, it's used a year too soon and things like that. But it's, it's the kind of thing that Civil War experts would notice easily. Um, those of us in Canada and other countries that haven't been as focused on the Civil War, I'm looking at that list going, okay, I would not have known any of those. No, nor I mean, would I. <laughs> so you don't you don't have to live in Canada to be ignorant of those facts. I I am I am a living proof of that ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of them it's like, well, yeah, that kind of riveting wasn't used on train engines till the 1880s. Okay, and just but... just from the very very interesting trivia point of view, or at least very interesting to me, when you look at the full cast list on IMDb, in a very very minor role, unconfirmed, is Boris Karloff. Yeah, it is entirely possible. Because this would have been, uh, this would have been about five years before Frankenstein, which was where his career started. He was mostly on the stage up to that point. So he might have shown up as an extra. But that's, there's a story with how he got the role of Frankenstein's monster, but I'll save that for a potential Frankenstein podcast. That is certainly one that may be looming in the future. Yeah. yeah, it's well well before he voiced the Grinch. Oh yeah. <laughs> so we go from silent movies to animated Grinch roles, uh, and and you know we we touched upon really quickly the film score in this movie, mm-hmm. and I found that also interesting. And I, I I think you know again you know as I said you have to view these movies differently if you're used to non-silent films or if you don't have a lot of experience with silent films and frankly I don't have a lot of experience with silent films but it was interesting to watch it and to try try to pay close attention to the music at points and see how are they setting the mood how are they bringing the action along how are they using the music to kind of tell the story to some extent and for the most part, I felt the music was kind of generic. But when you're making 75 minutes of piano music, I'm not sure that you can go, you know, you can you can, you can have every bit of it being meaningful. Okay, and if you just heard piano, then you heard a different score than I did. Most of what I heard was piano. I mean, there was some background instrumentation, but the, you know, the, the piano dominated it. Yeah, there's, with silent films of this era, um, it's very rare that they had their own prepackaged score. Some of them did, because they knew there'd be you know, most theaters either had a, a small orchestra or at least an organ player during the silent era to provide some level of accompaniment and also have someone in the, the theater while the, the films were running. Uh, this wasn't that. So a lot of, you know, Charlie Chaplin's movies from the era, Charlie Chaplin would do his own scoring and that sort of thing. I've always preferred Buster Keaton because I think, you know, Chaplin tried to do everything and it's impressive that he could do everything as well as he could. Whereas Keaton said, that's not my expertise. I'll focus on this area. That is my expertise, and you just go do that piece. So I watched this on the Kino International Blu-ray. And for films of this type, you know, your silent classics and things like that, Kino does a phenomenal job. In terms of home video releases, DVD, Blu-ray, I would say Criterion is my favorite company, and Kino was second. And the Kino release actually has three different orchestral scores you can pick from when you're watching the film uh, my preference is the default which is the 1987 carl davis score that was create you know was created for a television broadcast on the bbc i think it was bbc4 they said in 1987 but there's two other scores on there one of them is strictly an you know one person on the organ to kind of give you the silent era feel and things like that so your source for this movie sometimes it'll truly be silent and no soundtrack whatsoever and you will have different scores depending on you know where you're watching it from so that that's just one thing to keep in mind i that's that's a highly recommend lesson in movie history there yeah i would personally highly recommend the uh the kind of international releases if you're seeing them there there's also some areas like i know the uh, Edmonton Symphony Orchestra here because I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. A couple of times a year, they'll actually have a night where they are accompanying, doing a live accompaniment to a silent film. So seeing the Mark of Zorro with that, I might be seeing Chaplin's City Lights early in the new year. But, yeah. 
that's kind of the situation we're at. We have a number of options. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's very interesting because I was unaware of that. I was just watching it and thinking, this is the score. And now I'm looking, as you're talking, I'm looking and I see that there's four different scores listed, all of which were somewhat modern, which means there's probably more like six or seven different scores available if you search high and low enough. Uh, and that, that's pretty interesting. On the one I heard, it was, like I said, primarily piano. There may have been a little bit of instrumentation behind it, but really we had piano music. And there were a couple of somewhat recognizable entries into the, into the music uh, to, to create a mood. But otherwise, it was more or less, let's just go with, you know, when something frenetic is gonna go, going on, we're going to have a frenetic pace on the music. When it's a more, you know, small scene of two people talking, we're going to slow it down and just have a little, you know, music playing in the background. Uh, which, okay. you know, it's, it's fairly standard. It is, and it's better than some. Um, I have a Madison DVD release of the 1921 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I do not understand Madison's music choices. I think they're just pulling everything from the public domain and slapping it together. Because that one has this dark, somber, horror-style music early on when the kindly Dr. Jekyll is you know, feeding kids at the orphanage. And it's got light, happy piccolo music while the evil Dr. Hyde is, or Mr. Hyde is beating a man to death in the street later on. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. I guess. Yeah. You know. I guess sometimes there's more, you know, tender loving care that's put into the choices, and other times it's just let's slap this together. Yeah. There, there's a big difference between, like I said, you know, a kind of international Blu-ray, and that the Madison, you know, at the time it was a five dollar bin where you couldn't get any other DVDs for less than twenty. Right. You can right. get some Madison products if it's just a single film. You can get it for two bucks now. So. They, that's a company that just specializes in public domain. Very interesting. Uh, anything else about this movie that you think is worth uh, mentioning at this point? Uh, I, I think the rest goes with the ratings. Okay, well then, then we've reached that point. This is the point in Is It Yours where we ask the question, Is It Yours? And let me give a description of the Jaws scale for anybody who doesn't know. Uh, while we use Jaws, Jaws 2, Jaws 3, and Jaws the Revenge as our rating levels, uh, the ratings do not necessarily comply with what I think of each respective movie, uh, and I'm sure other people as well. For our purposes and the purposes of this show, if you rate it Jaws, you're saying it's an all-time classic, it's a great movie, it's virtually flawless, or, and if there are flaws, they're not going to impact your ability to watch and enjoy this movie. Jaws 2 is a really solid movie, maybe a couple of mistakes here and there, but, you know, definitely enjoyable, worth a rewatch, and take it from there. Jaws 3, it was somewhat entertaining, but nothing that you're going to write home about. And Jaws The Revenge, or Jaws 4, is pretty much a total failure piece of garbage. So, Blaine, the general, is it Jaws? Uh, yeah, I would say this is the original Jaws. This is one of the classics. This is, as you said, it was on the AFI's Top 100 list from 2007, where it came in as the 18th greatest American film of all time. In their original run, it came in, I believe it was 17th on the all-time comedies list. It's just a movie, like I said, th this is my acid test. I've had people who say that, no, every silent movie is terrible. They just won't watch this one. I put them down in front of this one, say half an hour and you can walk, and nobody has walked. All right, fair enough. I'm going to give a sliding scale on this one. I'm going to say if you are a movie historian, if you are a fan of how movies are made and, and what they've done over time, and if you're a fan of just the whole film industry and able to immerse yourself despite differences in movie making and... Uh, movie styles then this is Jaws if you are a more casual fan but have some interest and are able to sit through a silent movie it's probably Jaws 2 and if you're closed minded I'm going to drop it even down to Jaws 3 I don't think under any circumstances could this be considered Jaws 4 no, but I do know people not. who are closed minded and I, I think even in the 
acid test that you've presented, if I sat them down in front of the TV set, uh, after a while they'd start looking at their phone. So for those people, I would give it a Jaws 3. But I, for me, for me, I would say it's somewhere in between Jaws and Jaws 2. It's like I want to, the, the, the movie historian fan in me wants to make it Jaws, but the guy who sits and likes action romps of the current day with CGI and, and all sorts of special effects in it probably drops it down to Jaws 2. I don't okay. know if that makes me a, a movie bore. <laughs> no, I can see that. Because as we've said from the start, a silent film is a different beast than the rest. I mean, you've on Keep Him Flying, you've said that Firefly is a show that you cannot multitask. Right? You have to sit and dedicate yourself to watching that show. And the silent films are also in that category. Absolutely, because if you start, yeah. if you turn your eyes away for a second, you might miss a critical plot point. Yeah, and that's something, as you've said, I mean, especially the modern generation, they're actually finding that, you know, that the gener- generation of grade school or elementary school kids these days are better at multitasking than the previous generations, because they're used to having the TV on while playing a video game on their phone and you know watching a youtube walkthrough of that video game on their tablet all simultaneously so not as much focus on any one task but they typically be better at multitasking and if you give them only a single task at once a lot of them have a hard time focusing on it because they've trained themselves to multitask at all times yeah. and that's a generation that would have additional difficulty sitting down and appreciating a lot of silent films I, I agree. I think you do have to put yourself into the uh, the mind frame of I'm going to sit, I'm going to focus on this movie, and I'm not going to do anything else. And it's I think it's pretty rewarding then. I have to say, you know, I did that yesterday to sit down and watch this, and I focused on it, and I enjoyed it. I, I found it to be entertaining, and, uh, you know, I, I like the historical aspect of it as well. And I don't mean the historical, hey, this is what happened in the Civil War. I mean, the, the historical filmmaking aspect of it. Yeah, there are... I would say that there's a, a couple of major films from the silent era where there's movies before that film and there's movies after. And there's a bit of a watermark. Um, the first is A Trip to the Moon from 1902. Because, you know, it was the first so-called two-reeler. Up to that point, all movies were 10 minutes or less because it was just one reel of film. This is the first time you had to synchronize two reels to tell the whole story. It was the first time that they constructed multiple elaborate sets because it was a sci-fi adaptation. That's one where the Méliès started to say, hey, you can really tell stories with these. The second was Birth of a Nation, which was the first epic. It broke the record. You know, the longest film up to that point was a little over 40 minutes. That one clocked in at over three hours. That one is a monument to the way films are made. It was the first time people tried conveying a social message with film, and it really showed people the power of what film can do. Sadly, the message it was conveying is that the U.S. fought a civil war and the bad guy or and the good guys lost. It's almost unwatchable because of the racism in it, but people at the time did learn. Oh. You can make films this way. Uh, There's a very clear demarcation. And this is one of those as well. Like you said, you had a hard time deciding whether to classify it as comedy or adventure. This was the first sort of genre bending film. And I think that's, again, part of the reason people didn't know what to make of it is because they couldn't decide what kind of film is it. They were used to movies fitting in box A or box B or box C, and that's it. And this kind of had like one foot in each box. Yeah, I would agree so with they, that they, too, and I and I think that goes back to what you talked about earlier, about people rating movies based on their expectations, and I think people who went into this movie expecting it to be you know a slapstick comedy, said, "What the hell am I watching here?" Because <laughs> yeah, it's not a slapstick comedy. Yeah, not at all. There's moments of, of slapstick. I mean, you can see why Jackie Chan, Buster Keaton, is his idol. You know, the stunts that Keaton does, one thing that Buster Keaton and Jackie Chan have in common is that they meticulously plan their stunts in advance and usually get them right the first time because if they don't, they're dead. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that would be a factor. Yeah, I mean, just even the, the moment where he, you know, Buster Keaton is running down the street trying to catch up with the trains, and he jumps onto a parked bicycle and just goes without missing a beat. Right, that bicycle is moving at full speed from the moment he lands on it. Right, when he's actually clearing the rebel out before the cow catcher, he was at risk. If he didn't do that right, he would derail the train he was riding on. <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely. Uh, you know, you, you hear about people nowadays who, oh, so and so, he insisted on doing his own stunts. And then when you watch the movie, you still see the obvious stunt doubles. And I'm sure sometimes it's the studio saying, no, you can't do this. It's too dangerous. You're the star of the movie. We have too much money invested in you. But I think, yeah. often, I think often it's bogus public relations trying to yeah. create some respect for an actor that really hasn't earned it himself in that regard. Yeah, or some of it is just information control. I mean, they talk about how Tom Cruise likes to do his own stunts. And I remember I was working at a theater when the first Mission Impossible film came out. And he was making a big deal in interviews over, you know, how he not only was actually in the harness when they dropped him down in that scene where, you know, the, he just barely missed that glowing white floor when he dropped down and had he made contact with it, that would have been it. And when he falls, he you know stops within inches of that floor. And in an interview, they said, was that really you? He's like, oh, yeah, we got it on the first take. And he was blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, you read or you. Yeah, you read the information that they sent out to the studios or to the theaters about, you know, how they did the special effects and all that. You find out when, yeah, they got it in one take because they just put him in the harness, dropped him into a laser grid and use CGI to superimpose the building or that room around him after the fact. Mm -hmm. So in that moment when he's dropping, there was no floor. So they just said, oh, yeah, he's that far down. We'll just put the camera there. And then the, the CGI guys just watched how far he dipped down. They had the, the laser grid measure it. And then they superimpose the floor, the given fraction of an inch below the lowest point he attained, just to give that tension. So, I mean, yeah, he did. It, it looks fine on screen, but it's not quite the feat that he would have you believe it was. Yeah, exactly. It's not that he didn't do his own special effect there. He did, or his own uh, stunt work. But let's not make it sound like he was, you know, falling off a cliff. Yeah, whereas sometimes Buster Keaton might actually be falling off a cliff. Here was just a very steep hill, but I wouldn't have put a cliff past him. <laughs> Any, anyway, it's been a pleasure having you on to discuss this movie. Oh, yeah, and I'm always and, glad to talk about it. So. And clearly, based on the conversation we've had, anybody listening closely is, is going to be very well aware of the fact that you were going to be back on the show and we have other movies to talk about. So, yeah, and so as, I, long as, as long as you make yourself available to me, you will be on. Yeah, and I fully intend to have you on my own show. I've got a, a new podcast starting in January called Make Me Watch It, where I will be partly by user vote and partly by what the, the guests want to watch. I'll be going through about the 900 or so movies I have in my collection that I haven't gotten around to watching yet. I'm, so. I'm looking forward to that, and I think it's the perfect uh, segue for you to tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah, that and my other shows, including the, the Silver Screen Superheroes, that's about superhero movies that's going to wrap up at the end of this year to make room for Make Me Watch It, uh, as well as Comic Book Physics and my Biweekly X-Files podcast are all available from Bureau42.com. And as I said, I'll definitely be inviting Paul to just you know pick a movie that he wants to, to make me watch for that podcast, or probably more than one by the time the series has run its course. Looking forward to it. Uh, and also anybody uh, listening who isn't familiar with Blaine, I would also recommend that you go back and you do his Marvel Top 75 Countdown, uh, which I thought was excellent. And I did manage to finagle my way into one of the 75 episodes. So that's something that has concluded, but there's no reason that that's a podcast that should be considered timeless. And there's no reason for people not to seek it on uh, iTunes or wherever you can get it. You know, past yeah, its and, uh, initial release dates. Yeah, and thankfully the feed I use is set up directly through Bureau42.com, so this isn't one of those ones where you're only going to see the most recent 50 or 20, or after a given amount of time, it just goes away. 
I, mean, I did a series called Doctor Who 50 and 50 for Doctor Who's 50th anniversary where I did 50 short daily podcasts. And those are all still live too. So the unofficial 75 will be up for quite some time. Cool. Anybody interested in giving some comments? Let us know if you're familiar with the general. Let us know if you watched it because you heard us talk about it. Let us know if you say, oh, that movie looks horrible to me and I'll never watch it no matter what you say. Uh, let me know movies you'd like to hear us review. The email address is jawspodcast at gmail.com. And right now my mailbag is empty, so uh, it would be nice to get a little in there. And I have one iTunes review so far. Thank you, Mr. Gene Hendricks. So I'd ask if you if you like the show, please uh, throw a review up, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. The General is, is in its entirety, a chase film. It's got some of the most spectacular action I've ever seen. I, of course, saw The General before I did The French Connection and thought, nothing can ever top this. And so I never thought that much about The French Connection. Because if you watch the chase scene in The General, it's truly awe-inspiring. I wonder to this day how they did some of it. How Keaton pulled off so many other effects in films before there was computer-generated imagery. You can do anything today on a computer. Some of the best chases I've seen are done on a computer. Everything in the general is done live. And it isn't even the editing that saves the scene, as it is with French Connection. For example, if, if I held on to a shot two or three frames longer in the French Connection, or if it was sh two or three frames shorter, the sequence would not be as effective. Because in those two or three frames, an eighth of a second, you might see a microphone pop into a shot like this, you know? Or you might see the camera start to tip over. Or you might see someone in the background making a face at the camera, not in the general. These, these chases are for real. Uh, the movement, the handling of crowds, uh, the use of trains at that time. <laughs> In a movie, it, it's awe-inspiring to me and breathtaking to this day.